0: Thank you so much, Perry and Josh. It's always a treat to have Josh's music, which can be funny and moving, too. Thank you. Unfortunately, I have bad news for you. You're going to die. Not particularly soon, I hope. Unfortunately, I have no information on the timing, circumstances, or location. But I can guarantee that someday it will happen. In fact, it's one of the few things in life that's guaranteed. As my father used to say, all we know for certain is that we'll die and pay taxes, unless we're a corporation. But that's kind of another platform. (laughs) And I'm not the only one who's noticed. The surety of our impending death has been a formational aspect of human existence since prehistoric times. Really, since there were humans who were conscious of their experience in the world. The problem of our own death is addressed by philosophers and theologians alike. Indeed, Forrest Church, the late Unitarian Universalist minister, said that religion was our response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. Forrest actually wrote beautifully about this dual reality and about the impulse toward love. In Love and Death, My Journey Through the Valley of the Shadow, which he wrote as he faced his own imminent death from esophageal cancer. But I used a different key text for this platform, a book that traces philosophical responses to death through the ages, a book that addresses the core human experience of facing our own mortality a book called Heidegger and a Hippo Walk Through Those Pearly Gates. <laughs> the subtitle for this book is Using Philosophy and Jokes to Explore Life, Death, Death, the Afterlife, and Everything in Between. And it's written by Thomas Cathcart and Daniel Klein. It's a hoot. I liked it even better than their other bestseller, Plato and a Platypus Walk into a Bar. There is some serious philosophy in there, which we'll take a look at, but the jokes and cartoons are really the best. I don't know what it is, but contemplating our mortality can sometimes tickle a nerve that seems to be awfully close to the funny bone. I think some of it has to do with our nervousness around the topic, or perhaps with the absurdity of this whole venture we call life. Before I keep going, though, I do want to say one thing on a more pastoral note. Today, we're talking about our own mortality on a philosophical level, and I hope having a little fun with it. I do think it's vitally important that we acknowledge and grapple with our mortality. I actually think it's a key function of a religious community. And while we're grappling, we might as well laugh a little bit. But of course, our own death when it is imminent, and perhaps even more so the deaths of those that we love and care for, bring forth from us keen and deep emotions, grief, anger, fear, and loss. I'm not addressing that aspect of death today, but for many of us, it is our most present and consuming experience with it. Forrest Church's book, Love and Death, speaks so beautifully to the way those emotions, those experiences are intertwined, of the courage that love requires of us knowing that we will someday lose the one we love. He speaks to the experience of grief that comes to all who love and the way that grief ultimately honors the love you hold. I have seen that grief, and I have felt it. At the end of October, this community will hold its annual Remembrance Day service, a chance for us to connect with and acknowledge the grief we feel, to honor and remember those we have lost. It is always a deeply emotional service and one that I feel privileged to take part in each year. Today, we are looking not at death as that searing or aching grief of an individual loss, but death as part of the broader, absurd serial comedy we call life. Death as a reality we can't escape. I find that I talk about the reality of death a lot. Not, as you might expect, as part of my work as a clergy person. No, death comes up most frequently in my life because my three-year-old daughter brings it up. We are beginning to worry she might have a macabre bent. (laughs) Marcella first learned about death almost two years ago when our beloved cat died. She was just two then, she's almost four now, and although we tried to explain the concept, I'm not sure it really stuck. For a number of months, we heard a lot of questions about when the cat was coming back from the vet. Now, though, at the wise age of not quite four, she has grasped the concept that when things die, they are gone and no longer alive. And so she likes to chat with great frequency about when various people will die. Occasionally, she seems concerned about it, but more often, she's matter of fact. You'll die, she says, but not until you're really old. This is one of the points we tried to stress when explaining death to her. I will die in a long, long, long time, she'll announce at dinner. And what can I say but, yes... She's learning how age works and growing up and how old she'll be in relation to her new baby sister. And her understanding of all that is wrapped up, not inaccurately, in an understanding that death eventually comes to all of us. And really, she doesn't seem particularly disturbed by that fact. Actually, sometimes her lack of concern is a little disturbing itself. While visiting my parents over the summer, she gave my mother a teddy bear and told her that she should take it to bed with her that night. My mother pointed out that perhaps my father wouldn't want a teddy bear in bed with them, that it might get a little bit crowded. Marcella thought for a minute, perhaps put out, since this was obviously a generous offer, then whispered reassuringly and a little triumphantly in my mother's ear, well, when Grandpa dies, then you can have the teddy bear in bed with you. (laughs) Ah, something to look forward to. (laughs) My mother, as you can imagine, was a bit at a loss for words. On the one hand, Marcella was right, so it didn't seem appropriate to offer a remonstrance. On the other hand, well, gee, my mother hardly felt pleased that this would be the way to get a teddy bear at night. But for all her somewhat disconcerting conversational gambits about death, My daughter actually gets it in a way that I think adults sometimes don't. The reality of our own mortality, I'd like to say as I'm reading this, I actually wrote the reality of our own immortality. (laughs) So maybe I don't get it as much as I pretend to. Okay. The reality of our own mortality can be so overwhelming that we come up with all kinds of alternatives from metaphysical systems that include a belief in the afterlife to pseudoscientific quests for immortality. If only, we seem to think, we could keep from dying. Well, we as a species have not yet figured out how to keep from dying. Plenty of people do believe in an afterlife of one form or another, from reincarnation to oneness with all of existence to a literal place you go and see your friends. My own response to the possibility of something more is, generally, that I would be delighted to be surprised after my death. But truthfully, none of these possibilities really gives us life without death. They give us alternatives to nothingness after death, but they still include the death part. Getting rid of death entirely requires us to delve into science fiction and fantasy land, with a sideline to actual science, too. I remember distinctly the first book I read that dealt with the possibility of immortality. It was Natalie Babbitt's Tuck Everlasting, and I read it in fifth grade, the year when they must have decided that we were old enough to think about death, since it was the same year we read The Heartbreaking Bridge to Terabithia. Poor fifth graders, right? Anyway, Tuck Everlasting features a family of immortals, the only ones on the planet so far as we know, and the relationship one of them forms with a young girl, the heroine of the story. There's plenty in the novel about young love and coming of age, but the basic point is, being immortal is not all it's cracked up to be. And didn't we know that from the vampire and zombie movies, anyway? The undead never seem particularly happy creatures. They are doomed to live forever rather than being delighted to live forever. Traipsing through history, they do get to meet a lot of people, but as in Tuck Everlasting, they can't ever really love those people somehow can't settle down and start a family. Just like with the Roman gods and goddesses, it just never works between an immortal and a mortal. Of course, you could say that just means that we should all be immortal. If the problem in Roman mythology and children's books comes from the mortal-immortal relationship, then if we were all immortal, we'd be fine, if perhaps eventually a little bored. I know I've already mentioned in another platform this fall, a novel I read this summer, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a Work of Fiction. Well, I really liked it, so too bad you're gonna hear about it again. One of the wonderful characters in this novel is a woman named Roz, who has retired from her work as an anthropology professor and started a nonprofit called the Immortality Foundation, dedicated to research and development of immortality, of course specifically the elimination of aging. Raz's friend Cass is doubtful that this is a great idea. I'm quoting. I just wonder, Cass says, whether coming to terms with one's own mortality isn't a necessary part of seeing oneself with the proper objectivity. Understanding that you have your time here on Earth, as the others that came before you had theirs, and as those who will come after will have theirs. You weren't for ages and ages, you are now, and soon enough, you won't be anymore, end quote. I agree with Cass, immortality is a bad idea. And isn't that convenient, actually, since I don't think it's possible? Mm -hmm. I think the reasons it's a bad idea can be found in the reasons mortality is a good idea, or anyway, the reasons that humans have found to make mortality livable. This is where we come to the Heidegger and Hippo book. To make the title a little clearer, we all know what a hippo is. Heidegger was a German philosopher of the 20th century, known for his particularly confusing writing. When I took my freshman philosophy class in college, which was essentially a survey of Western philosophy from Plato to Hannah Arendt, I distinctly remember a professor saying, You know, all of this would make much more sense if you could read Heidegger. But of course, you wouldn't understand Heidegger. So, (laughs) the ultimate in circular logic. Anyway, luckily, this book is intended to make Heidegger more comprehensible to the layperson, which is good because the first quote that they use from Heidegger is the following. To think, capital B, being itself explicitly I'm not even sure where to put the emphasis in this sentence. To think being itself explicitly requires disregarding being to the extent that it is only grounded and interpreted in terms of little b, beings, and for beings as their ground, as in all metaphysics. End quote. If you know what that means, see me after, and I will give you a gold star and ask you to explain it to me. What Heidegger brought, though, to the study of mortality was the idea that our ability to fully participate in life absolutely depended on the existence of mortality. As the authors of this Heidegger and Hippo book put it, using their affectionate nickname for the philosopher, quote, Heidi stresses the fact that only a human being is aware of his mortality, unlike, say, a pussycat. The latter scratch and bite to avoid being eaten by my dog, Moisha, but she is not conscious of the big void that awaits her if Moisha prevails. Awareness of mortality is thus unique and fundamental to the human condition, which happens to be the condition our condition is in, end quote. Forrest Church, the minister who wrote Love and Death, said it a little more eloquently. Death awakens me to life's preciousness and also its fragility. And other philosophers find similar ways to link our awareness of morality to our experience of being human. Soren Kierkegaard is one, a 19th century philosopher who is known particularly as a Christian theologian and who is most famous for his leap of faith argument about belief, which posited that religious beliefs cannot be proved and must be accepted despite proof. In the context of death, Kierkegaard focused on the anxiety we feel when contemplating our own mortality. For him, experiencing that anxiety, really sitting in the angst, was actually a path to experiencing God. Or, put more broadly in our Heidegger and Hippo book, it's only when we dare to experience the full anxiety of knowing that life doesn't go on forever that we can experience transcendence and get in touch with the infinite." End quote. For Kierkegaard, this sense of anxiety is what prepared people to make the leap of faith he thought essential for religious belief and experience. Process theologian Paul Tillich is another key figure here. He is the 20th century theologian who broadened the understanding of God to be however we imagine that of ultimate concern. About death, our philosophizing jokers wrote, quote, Tillich believed that eternal life is not life that goes on and on with no end in sight like law and order. To (laughs) Tillich, you see why I like the book, to Tillich as to Heidegger, that would be an image of hell. Rather, the eternal is right here in every moment of time. It is a dimension of time that cuts into time the eternal is present now as the eternal now, End quote. We see here, I think, an almost Buddhist sensibility, an anchoring of the entirety of our experience in each moment. Very different from the more traditional Christian understanding of eternity existing somewhere beyond, Tillich puts eternity in our grasp, accessed by us when we are able to be fully present. And that may be, frankly, a much more palatable version of eternity than even the ones held out by religious traditions that believe in an afterlife. When considering the possibility of heaven, the authors of Heidegger and a hippo are mostly worried it would be a little boring. They have a joke, actually. The whole book has jokes, but this one I really had to share with you. Gil is casting his line along a beautiful stream when he snags a gorgeous 20-pound salmon. But just as he's hauling it in, he has a massive heart attack. When he comes to consciousness, he sees that he is lying beside an even more beautiful stream and that it is teeming with salmon. Next to him is a state-of-the-art rod and reel. He grabs it and casts his line. Bingo! Gil immediately catches a spectacular thirty five pound salmon and reels it in he feels terrific he casts again and once again he instantly snags a fantastic fish on and on he goes the glorious fish lying in a long row on the bank behind him but as the afternoon wears on gill realizes that he is no longer fishing with his usual enthusiasm in fact he's starting to feel bored Just then, he sees another man walking along the stream bank toward him. "'So, this is heaven,' Gil calls to the other man. "'You think so?' comes the reply. (laughs) Now, I liked it. Now, of course, most formulations of heaven, or hell for that matter, aren't about endless fishing— In their most mystical writing, religious traditions describe a kind of union, a oneness with all being and with the eternal that is beyond anything we could imagine. I actually think that this joke is even better used to illustrate why immortality, here on this non-union fishing plane that we inhabit, might not be so great. The authors of Heidegger and a Hippo contemplate this as well, turning to existentialism, And what they call, quote, the problem of ennui, that's existentialist French for extreme boredom with life, accompanied by lots of weary shrugs and sighs, end quote. (laughs) Essentially, they argue, a life of never ending life wouldn't be much of a life at all. Philosopher Sir Bernard Williams, citing a play in which the heroine lives more than 300 years, wrote, quote, Her unending life has come to a state of boredom, indifference, and coldness. Everything is joyless. So does that mean death brings joy? I'm not sure I can quite make that argument, and I reserve the right to say, even beyond the deep grief we feel when we lose someone we love, that our own death is not all it's cracked up to be. Woody Allen, whose words appear frequently in Heidegger and to Hippo, said it best, I think. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> but I do think that even the endlessly entertaining Allen might get bored with himself after a few millennia. There's something about knowing that there will someday be an end that makes our beginning and middle feel more urgent more present. This is so true that it's almost a cliche now to talk about the new lease on life people sometimes experience when they have near-death experiences. But occasionally, cliches are true, and I think this one is, because I've seen it happen. Reminders of our own mortality can help us to take stock of our lives, to reorder our priorities, to experience our living more fully. There's a country song that's seared into my head because, unfortunately, was on constant rotation a few years back. I suppose it's my fault I kept my radio on the country station all the time. Tim McGraw sings in his big, good old boy way about a friend who got a scary diagnosis. Man, what'd you do, he asks. The reply is pure country, but also pretty well-grounded in Western philosophical thought. I went skydiving, I went rocky mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, Man, I hope someday you get the chance to live like you were dying. On a side note, I'd like to say I feel vindicated in my belief that country music carries deep philosophical undertones. <laughs> the authors of Heidegger and a Hippo thought so too and quoted that very song. So living like we are dying, and to remind you of the bad news at the beginning of this platform, we are all dying. Living this way can help us remember our dreams and treat each other kindly. Or at least that's what Tim McGraw says. I would describe our sense of mortality as giving life a kind of crispness, putting into high relief the experiences of each moment. I think mortality can also save us from one of the great sins, a sense of hubris of our own all-consuming importance. Ancient Roman war heroes were followed by a slave whose whole job was to shout, Memento Mori, remember you will die. How's that for taking you down a notch? And at the same time, that sense of humility can also be linked to a deep sense of self. Think back to what our hero Cass said in response to his friend Roz's Immortality Foundation work. You weren't for ages and ages. You are now. And soon enough, you won't be anymore. Hidden in that somewhat depressing statement is the gem. You are now. You are now, and more specifically, you are you now. I was reading Dr. Seuss yesterday, again because of the three-year-old, and came across what I think should be the second half of Cass's sentence. It's from the book, Happy Birthday to You, and of course it's written in Seuss's inimitable style. If we didn't have birthdays, you wouldn't be you. If you'd never been born, well, then what would you do? If you'd never been born, well, then what would you be? You might be a fish or a toad in a tree. You might be a doorknob or three baked potatoes. You might be a bag full of hard green tomatoes. Or worse than all that, why well, you might be a wasn't. A wasn't has no fun at all. No, he doesn't. A wasn't just isn't. He just isn't present. But you, you are you. And now isn't that Pleasant. Somehow, our job is to remember both Cass's words and Dr. Seuss's. To see in our mortality a reminder of our insignificance in the grand scheme of things and, paradoxically, the very great significance of our lives to us. To be like Badger in our story this morning, not afraid of death but living so that all of life is a gift to experience death as a closing chapter, whether or not we believe in an epilogue, and to use that closing chapter as a reason to make the whole story wonderful, and to greet the Grim Reaper, as in a cartoon supplied, of course, by my joking philosopher friends. Thank goodness you're here. I can't accomplish anything unless I have a deadline.